This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, Pedro here. I'm a Portuguese working at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, managing a multicultural department of around 50 people. Listening to Rough Translation along these years helped me, for sure. The premise of the program is exactly what is missing in a lot of organizations. Looking at reality from a different perspective to try to understand things that do not fit in our worldview. Hey, it's Gregory, host of Rough Translation. In the lead up to our summer season, we are dropping a few fan favorites in the feed, and I'd like to set this next one up by telling you a story that happened to me about 20 years ago in a maximum security prison. So this was my first job out of college uh, for a prison monitoring group in New York, where I live, and my job was to visit all the medium and maximum security prisons in the state and talk to the inmates with mental illness, or the people on the mental health caseload, as they called it. I had surveys, I carried a clipboard, I wore a suit that was... uh, too big for me. I had no background in psychology or in prisons, but the person who picked me for this job, a criminal justice professor, thought that I had a good way with people. And so I'd pretty confidently stroll into the prison, find the people on my list, and talk to them, ask them about their situation and their medical care. Afterwards, I take my notes back to the office. Name, diagnosis, maybe something about them. Alex, paranoid schizophrenia, stared at wall during interview. Roberto, bipolar disorder, smiley and friendly, but strong odor from cell. James, borderline personality disorder, plus PTSD. Answered all questions while folding paper boats. I must have interviewed maybe four or 500 people that spring. And my approach every time would be to keep things friendly, casual-like. Just two people having a chat. I'd pretend not to notice the bars between us, because I thought that was polite not to notice the bars. Even this one time when a guy started banging his head against them. So for a few months, I did these interviews until one day, I think I was just carrying a lot of stuff, but I had to put my pen down on the bars for just a second. And the inmate, he looked at the pen, which technically could be used as a weapon, and he looked at me. And then I looked at him, and I looked at the pen, and then he smiled And I grabbed the pen and started asking my questions. And just that little acknowledgement that the bars were in fact there, I think it changed things for the interview. And I would remember that for years afterward, really. That when I pretended the bars weren't there, I was forcing them to pretend that this was just a casual chat. That both of us could come and go. As a journalist, I've had so many times when I felt like there are bars between me and the person I'm talking to. Maybe it's a difference of power or language or passports or just the fact that I can leave this war, this crisis, this situation, and they can't. I started Rough Translation as a show where we would try to acknowledge those bars between us, maybe find ways to temporarily break through. And so I think it's fitting that this first drop from the archives is a prison story. It's from 2017, and it was suggested by a listener named Teresa Del Ministro, who sent us a voicemail this weekend. It is hard to pick a favorite episode of Rough Translation. The one that got me into the podcast was Anna in Somalia, 
I did not know that a podcast could convey so many things at once, and I listened to it half a dozen times. I shared it with my colleagues from Somalia and Somaliland, and since then, rough translation became a little ritual. Thank you, Teresa, and, and so many of you sent us your favorite episodes and your notes of support. Uh, just a reminder, I have started a Substack. It is for you and for all the Rough Translation listeners who have loved the stories that we've brought you from around the world. I'm going behind the scenes of your favorite episodes. We'll also feature pretty amazing stories from other podcasts around the world. And I'll be making plans for the future, and I'd like you to be the first to know. The Substack is called Around the World in 85 Days. That link is in the show notes. If you subscribe soon, you can join our first community chat and um, get to know each other in the Rough Translation community. Anyway, here's Anand Somalia, as it first aired in 2017. The six months before Mohammed went to prison were the best six months of his life. He'd landed this great job managing a Pepsi plant, and he'd found true love on his first date. We went to a small restaurant near where we lived. Her name was Ismahan, 20 years old, Tell her at a state bank. And, you know, we were talking and used shyly, of course, you know. She was very shy and and we realized that we wanted to get married. That's it. Love at yeah. first sight, sort of. Yeah, it's in a sense, yeah. Mohammed said he was just so struck by how generous she was and smart. And they connected about everything from the future of their country to the music they liked. Whatever images the word Somalia calls to mind, the Somalia where Mohammed lived was in a cultural renaissance. This was 1981. It was under communist rule. And the dictator, he was a dictator, but he was also a big fan of Somali culture and music. Music was actually a big part of how Mohammed courted Ismahan. He made her mixtapes. This was the 80s. She was into songs and stuff like that. Yeah. Did you sing or did she sing? Oh, she's a better singer. So a few months after Mohammed and Isman got married, Mohammed got a phone call from the director of the local public hospital. Would you please help me bring some uh, donations from the communities? He was desperate for donations. For medicine and uh, for bedding, in fact. That music-loving dictator, his name was Siad Barre, he'd cut off supplies to the hospital in retaliation for an independence movement in the region. The doctor had been calling all his friends in secret. Yeah, we were talking all the time. Saying, you know, you work for Pepsi, you have connections, you know people, can we raise the money discreetly ourselves? But Mohammed wanted to go big. I suppose maybe I wanted to share my happiness. <laughs> what do you mean by share your happiness? You know, contribute, because there are other people who were less fortunate than us. Mohammed was in that stage of new love when you just kind of think the world is full of good feeling and if everybody knew what was going on, they would do the right thing. And he takes this bold and pretty risky move. He writes a letter. Some kind of uh, newsletter. About the hospital conditions. Yes, and telling the conditions of the country. Essentially implying that the dictator is not doing right by us and we got to step up ourselves. A couple weeks later, Mohammed and Isman heard a knock on their door in the middle of the night. National security people. They don't have no warrant or anything like that. They just said we need to take him. And I could see her, my wife, and... I, could, I remember her in her eyes. What was in her eyes? You know, love, but also terror. 
Mohammed is accused of treason and sentenced to life in solitary confinement. Blindfolded, handcuffed, and sent to a, a cell. And this is where the story really begins. Mohammed's cell is tiny, maybe six feet by six feet, concrete walls, hole in the floor for a toilet, and a window high up that lets in just a little bit of light. It's very dark, and cockroaches come from the toilet. Cockroaches? Cockroaches, and they will fly off the wall towards you and excrement with their feet. So, you, on, the, on their feet would be excrement from the toilet? Yeah, yes, yes. After the cockroaches come the rats and the mice and the mosquitoes. The noise of the mosquitoes. Oh, like an engine, you know, jet engine. But even worse than that sound is the buzzing in his own mind. Because in this prison, there is one rule. It was strictly forbidden to talk to your neighbors. He's forbidden to speak to the other inmates. So you walk forward and backward. Pacing back and forth. And this is a, and it's a tiny place to walk back and forth. Three short steps. So like three short steps forward, three short steps backward, three short steps forward. Yes. So that is his life now. Until one day, he hears a knock on the wall. And that knock becomes words from another time and another place. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. This is Rough Translation. It's the show from NPR bringing you familiar conversations from unfamiliar perspectives. I'm Gregory Warner. In this episode, the story of a story translated across time and space and culture and a concrete wall that saved a man's life. I should build a monument for that book. (laughs) One book that changed everything when Rough Translation returns. Hi, my name is Taylor Jung, and I'm a social justice reporter based in Brooklyn, New York. And one of the reasons why I love Rough Translation is because it showed me a path that was possible in journalism. As a multiracial, multiethnic person, I wanted to tell, you know, stories about people who looked like me. And I don't know, I still didn't see, I just saw these like one-dimensional, two-dimensional human interest stories. But when I started listening to Rough Translation, I saw how the podcast really took these seemingly disparate um, cultures, people, places, stories, all into one episode and showed how they were all connected in some strange way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. I think that there's more and more of those stories that aren't one dimensional and, you know, honor the complexity and nuances of people's lived experiences. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. 
Donate today at cancer.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Gregory Warner. We're back with Rough Translation. It's eight months into Mohammed's prison sentence, and he's in his cell, as always. He's alone. Not quite, though. There were so many different types of ants as well. Ants? Ants, you know, tiny ones, really. Just like watching a film, great film. <laughs> the way they, they look around for food, the way they treat each other. When you give them time, it's another world. I would have loved to go see uh, their hill, their, their holes, where they were staying. But I couldn't because it was all concrete. And then one evening, when the guard is at the other end of the line of cells, just out of earshot, the guy in the cell next to Mohammed whispers. Through the door saying, Lane ABC through the wall. Lane ABC through the wall. I did not understand. Lane ABC through the wall. How can I? <laughs> I look at the wall between us, so... But then, but then he knocked on the wall. He, he did this. And when Mohammed leaned over to the wall, he could hear this sound. That's sharp. And that. A code. You say, yes, I understand now. And he started this A, B, C, D, E, F. First an alphabet, and then words. And what, what, you, what was the first sentence that you heard? So, Nabat, which means peace in Somali, and it means how are you also. Yeah. Nabat. I could repeat that word all, all that day without doing anything else. And so Mohammed can now spend most of a day tapping back and forth to talk with the guy in the next cell about politics, to share a childhood memory. But at night, when he can't sleep, he turns again to the concrete. And then again, and again. I was only sleeping for you, maybe half an hour, then wake up in half an hour. Mohammed would wake up from a nightmare, sweaty and in a panic. I lost my sleep. Are you awake, he tap. I can't sleep. I need to talk. When I try to sleep, when I'm falling asleep, suddenly my heart races so fast. So I was thinking those days that this is the smell of death. What is the smell of death? I think it's fear. Mohammed had a lot of fearful thoughts in that prison cell, especially about his wife. I, I could not imagine how, how she is. Because there are no news from, from the world, from the outside world. It's really difficult to imagine where she is, even whether she's alive. And there was a meaner thought as well. The government was encouraging wives to divorce their husbands. The government was saying you should divorce? Yes, because there are traitors, these people who are in prison. Even some sheikhs found Quranic verses to support that. Divorce in Somali society, in Islam, is usually the husband's exclusive right. But there are these Quranic verses that can allow a wife to choose to divorce her husband if the husband's absent for some time. 
And sheikhs loyal to the dictator used those verses to pressure the wives of political prisoners. Quite a number of people were divorced from their wives. I, I was thinking sometimes that she could. She was only 20 years old. They had only been married for three months. And he was sentenced to life. You think she's probably enjoying herself. She's living her life. And I am in this place. At first, it's just a little twinge of resentment. And then the feeling comes back, stronger and sharper. He thinks, she should be visiting me. But wait, she can't visit me. Nobody can visit this prison. Nobody can get in touch. And still you blame her for not getting in touch with you. And and what do you think about her in those moments when you're blaming her for not uh, visiting you? You know, they're, they're very far from love. He probably hate her at that particular time. Every time that Muhammad tapped one of these dark thoughts onto the wall, someone was listening, and the someone on the other side of the wall was a doctor. Dr. Adan Abakor is also an inmate in this prison. And as the doctor is listening to these taps on the wall, he's also diagnosing them. Acute anxiety here. He was telling me these symptoms through the wall. I should tell you that Dr. Adin and Mohammed were actually friends before prison. Yeah, yeah. The doctor was the director of the public hospital, the one who'd called him up and asked him for donations. He did not ask Mohammed to write that letter complaining about the hospital conditions. Because there were no press allowed, no newspapers, no free press. And that's the moment the government decided that they should do something about us. But if the doctor blamed Mohammed for writing the letter that got them both thrown in prison... He didn't show it. Every time that Mohammed knocked, whatever the hour, the doctor would knock back. He used to have these nightmares. So he jumps, he has a nightmare, and then he knocks on the, on the wall again. So I have to wake up and then again start conversation, you know, so that he can fall asleep again. Just like a baby, you know, taking a baby to, to bed and making him fall asleep, you know. If Dr. Adin seems fairly unsentimental about some of the more dramatic aspects of Muhammad's life... Just like a baby. You know, it's partly that these two men are such different personalities. While Muhammad described that nighttime arrest as a moment of shock and terror, Dr. Adin seems to have met those same secret police with a bag, packed and ready for prison. A bag of clothes and lots and lots of books. Huh? Why books? Books is the best friend in, in a prison. But then when you got to the prison, it was taken away, the bag. Everything was taken away. Even our glasses were taken away. And so... Tell me about the day you learned the language, or learned the knocking language. Well, it was the most exciting day in our life. It was the most exciting, and we couldn't sleep. We started practicing it the whole day and the whole night. And if there is a joke and somebody laughs... Everybody starts knocking on the wall and asking that friend, what's that joke about? And that, that guy starts sending the message, the joke. And it goes from one It could take an hour to send a cell. tiny joke from one cell to the next cell to the next. There were eight of them in this prison. The, the guards, of course, they don't know that we are knocking on the wall because they can't hear. And then when they see us all laughing, they just say, oh, this guy, these guys are also losing their sanity. Meanwhile, on the other side of the wall, Mohammed really was worried that his mind was slipping. I was frightened of going to a certain area in my mind when I would commit suicide without knowing, without wanting to. Is it almost like uh, the fear of going crazy yes. was making you crazy? Yes, the fear. 
the fear was, you know, you could, you could imagine people who were crazy and you could imagine that maybe going crazy was the point of no return. So you were frightened of that. While the doctor on his side of the wall... And I was trying to uh, counsel him and explain to him through the wall that he's not going to go mad and that he's not going to die. But you can't counsel a person through a wall. Months go by, then a whole year. Finally, it's two years into their prison sentence, and something happens. Dr. Adden is summoned to the office of the warden to get a change of clothes. The room was empty, and there was a bench, and they asked you to sit on the bench. And then he asked, he asked one of the guards to go and bring your bag. Just and the whole bag with all your clothes, your books, everything. Yeah. And then he, you, op- he, you open that bag, and then he tells you to choose something new to wear. And you don't choose anything else. He says, don't choose anything else. No, that was the regulations. The doctor's getting his first change of clothes since he arrived in prison. And so then you showed back two years later to choose your next T-shirt. Yes. But then the doctor turns to the warden. He looks him right in the eye. Can I have one book? I said, that's all. Even I did not expect that he would agree to give me. So I just, I just tried, you know. And he said, yes, you can. But choose one of all of your books. So then I started thinking of the, of the biggest book I can take with me. A few minutes later, the doctor is walking back to his cell with the fattest book in his bag under his arm. You can picture him fantasizing about just getting to lie down and read. But when he returns to his cell, there's that sound at the wall. It occurred to me the thought that, why don't I read this book for him through the wall and distract the negative thoughts? Meanwhile, Mohammed, on his side of the wall, Here's a new set of taps. I have a book, a book, and I'll read it to you chapter by chapter. That's Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina. Uh-huh. Anna Karenina, the famous novel by Leo Tolstoy, published in 1878. The English translation that they're using is 800 pages, 350,000 words, nearly 2 million letters. Each letter a set of taps. So the doctor prepares himself. So to start, I took a piece of my bed sheet and I put it around, around my wrist. Like he's prepping for a medical procedure, wrapping the sheet around his wrist and knuckle. Because it will, it will damage my wrist if I continue like that. So then I started knocking and he started listening. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Everything was in confusion in the Oblonsky's house. The wife had discovered that the husband was carrying on... What that book did to Mohammed's mind? When Rough Translation returns. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center. Every year, millions of people lose someone to cancer. But as an NCI-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center ranked in the country's top 4%, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center is unrelenting in finding new ways to understand, detect, treat, and prevent cancer unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. Learn more at MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. 
Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Gregory from Rough Translation. And uh, before we get back to Anna and Somalia from 2017, a question for you. What are some of your favorite Rough Translation episodes and why? An episode that I particularly appreciate is The Cat Must Still Be Fed. How to Speak Bad English. One of my most favorite episodes has been The American Surrogate. And if we were going to have a kind of rough translation listening party together, which stories would you want to hear? I just completely was hooked and mesmerized. If you have an episode to suggest, and especially a story about how it came to affect you or how you've used it in your life, Send that to us at roughtranslation at npr.org, and you might hear from us. See you, and uh, I'm not going to say goodbye. I'm just going to say see you soon. We're back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. The day that the novel Anna Karenina entered their lives marked a new phase for Mohammed and the doctor. Each morning, Dr. Adden would carefully wrap his hand and open the novel. Mohammed, on his side of the wall would listen. When he was dressed, Stepan Arkadyevich sprinkled some scent on himself. Although it was only knocking, but it brought the whole story to me. Pocketbook matches and watch with its double chain and seals, and shaking out his handkerchief, feeling himself clean, fragrant, healthy, and physically at ease in spite of his unhappiness, he walked with a slight swing on each leg into the dining room where coffee was already waiting. If it's been a while since you cracked open Anna Karenina, here's what you need to know. Anna is a noblewoman in 19th century Russia. She's married to a man much older than herself. She goes to a ball in a black velvet dress lined with lace and falls in love with a soldier, Count Vronsky. He's kind of a rich boy, careless in love. Mohammed immediately hates him. He's also in uniform, and I was hating anything in uniform. Actually, this is very important, really. Yeah. I really felt that. Right, he's in the military and you were in a military prison. Yeah, I was in a military prison, definitely. So you really didn't like Vronsky? No. <laughs> so anyway, the soldier, Vronsky, he steals Anna's heart, he gets her pregnant, even though she's still married to the other guy. And then Anna makes a choice that really changes everything. Because instead of having a secret affair, like all the others in her social set, she makes her love public. She leaves her husband. And society, the Russian nobility, cut her off. They isolate her. Vronsky is a man, so he's pretty much able to go on with his life as before. But Anna's realizing how alone she is. She's staying in her room, wondering what Vronsky's up to when he's not with her. Okay. Just the same as Mohammed was wondering what his wife was doing outside the prison walls. Mohammed reads me this one sentence from the book. If you love it hard, sorry, if, if you love it hard, he would understand all the difficulty of her situation and he would rescue her from it. If he loved her, he would rescue her from her situation. It's interesting because Anna is trapped by views about women and yes. maybe desire and, and all. But you were trapped by real walls. He says it didn't matter how different their lives seemed on the outside. Inside, she was suffering all the time. He felt exactly like Anna. He also was jealous, crazily jealous, and also hating himself for being jealous. And all of a sudden, he meets this fictional character who is suffering in exactly the same way. And this suffering 
is driving her into a state that Mohammed most feared for himself. Going to a certain area in my mind when I would commit suicide without knowing, without wanting to. So it's now 750 pages into the book, and two months have passed since the doctor first started tapping the book letter by letter. Anna and Vronsky are now living in Moscow, and it's summer, so it's hot and suffocating. And on this particular day, Vronsky is off visiting his mom, which Anna hates because she thinks she's trying to set him up with a young princess. And Anna is in this state of mind where she both thinks that she's a burden to Vronsky and she thinks he'd be better off without her, but also she wants him to suffer her absence the way she's suffering. It's in this state that Anna finds herself walking down a train platform. The train is hurtling down the tracks, and this thought possesses her. She knew what she had to do. With a rapid, light step, she went down the steps that led from the tank to the rails and stopped quite near the approaching train. As Mohammed is listening to this, and he's thinking about what she is about to do. I really cried. I felt for her. But he realizes his tears are not just for Anna. That's when I remember my wife. And he's remembering Ismahan, his wife. How much she's suffering. And, and yes, the book's the one that brought me back to think about her a lot. And he finds himself asking a question that in two years in prison he has not asked himself before. Did I do well in those few months we were together? Had he been a good husband? Yeah. Did I treat her as she deserved? And instead of thinking she's left him and also hating himself for thinking that she's left him, he's thinking, why did he take himself away from her by writing that stupid newsletter? Maybe we could have done it in a different way. That letter that got them all thrown in prison. Maybe we could have talked to them. And putting himself in his wife's shoes like that, it kind of took him out of his own misery. He could think a thought like, She suffered worse you know, than me because I was only in prison, but she was in the outside world. He goes from self-pity to pity for her. Oh, I think that's related to the book. Tolstoy's fa- actually famous for that. That's like his magic, crazy talent. Can you say more about that magic, crazy talent? Because like when I was rereading... I told Elif Bachman about Muhammad's story. You've heard her reading the Tolstoy passages for us. She's also a writer, novelist herself, and totally obsessed with Anna Karenina. I like it a lot. <laughs> when I told her about Muhammad's experience, she had this idea about why that book in particular might have helped Muhammad make this mental leap from hating his wife to imagining everything through her eyes. Tolstoy gives a lot of weight to, to all of the characters, like even to just like a newlywed young girl. You spend a lot of time in her thoughts, and th- there's like a scene where she's trying to eat a mushroom on a plate and it keeps slipping from under her fork. Trying in vain to spear a disobedient, slippery mushroom with her fork and shaking the lace through which her arm showed white. It's a book that takes the subjectivity of young women seriously, and not just young women, everyone, the servants and I mean the dog. There's a hunting scene in this that um, actually goes to the perspective of the dog, and, and everything just seems so true. You read that and you're like, that's definitely what that dog was thinking. And so she says the experience of reading Tolstoy is the experience of being constantly confronted with how differently the same thing can look from a slightly different perspective. Like he's just, he never gets bored of showing that. And in the book, the characters themselves actually judge each other and then are able to expand that and to see each other a little bit more generously. That's what Elif thinks that Tolstoy's book 
gave to Muhammad. It definitely helped that. It definitely, definitely. In a place like like that prison, people become very selfish. You think everybody has forgotten about me at the beginning, forgotten about me, so and nobody cares about me like that. But when you think about other people's situation, then you you understand. It helped me survive. It helped me even sleep better. Tolstoy actually had one more role to play in Muhammad's life. Eight years after his arrest, the Somali political winds had shifted and the dictator was trying to appease his enemies. Mohammed and the others were suddenly released. He discovered his region of Somalia was flattened by civil war. But Mohammed also discovered something else. His wife, Isman, she was still his wife. She had not given up on him. And she had suffered in his absence. Working at the state bank, she'd been pressured by her boss to divorce the traitor Mohammed. When she refused, she was relocated. And by the time Mohammed was released, she was living in a refugee camp in Germany. She couldn't even make it back to Somalia to see him. So I wait another, uh, that was for another, say, about 10 months, I think, to, to see each other. Finally, they figure out a way that they can reunite in a neighboring country. And though it's been almost a decade since they've seen each other, he recognized her immediately from a distance. And as they drew closer, Isman opens her arms to give her husband a hug, and he reaches out. And all that he could do in that moment is shake her hand. Yeah. What do I not feel as... I felt, even, even in prison, I was feeling so much in love with her. And yet when we met, it wasn't the same. She was like a... You know, as a stranger, something like that. Wow. I mean, I was asking myself, why are you not uh, as in love with her as before? In the prison, in a way, you are not living. You are still inside yourself. You are not, you have to open. And Tolstoy was very much part of that. He was overcome by a momentary doubt of the possibility of setting up that new life he had dreamed of on the way. This is where the book came back to him. It wasn't Anna he was thinking of, but another character named Levin. He's also in love, also a person of strong emotions. And Levin, just like Mohammed in that moment with his wife, is racked by self-doubt. Doubts and eternal dissatisfaction with yourself vain attempts to improve and failures, and an eternal expectation of the happiness that is... It's not really until the end of the book that Levin learns to stand outside himself, to put his own uncertainty in perspective. And Mohammed, he had to learn how to do the same thing. We had to learn to love each other again. And probably uh, uh, Tolstoy had a lot to do with it. You you think Tolstoy helped you fall in love again? Yeah, I mean, I mean... The feeling of love, you know, it wasn't so easy to become uh, in love again. This man has been experienced and she was living her real life. It's difficult for people to probably to live with someone who has been in solitary confinement for so long. I was probably very difficult to live with at that particular time. And you're saying that knowing that you were hard to live with, knowing... Yes, yes. It made it easier for us to talk to each other, to uh, live, to learn to live with, with each other. Because you knew that yes, your heart yes, was not... Yes, yes, 
quite working yet. Yeah. I should build a monument for that book. (laughs) Hey, one last thing. There is someone else to give credit to here besides the great Russian author. Every detail that Tolstoy wrote into that book, every perspective shift that helped Mohammed escape his prison cell, all those sentences had to be tapped out on a concrete wall by a friend. I could imagine him, you know, getting tired because he was working hard, really working hard. So I could imagine him getting tired and all that. Why was he doing it? Just to make me, for me. Yeah. He's doing it for me. Dr. Adin said that Mohammed was his last patient. After their release, he was just too out of practice to return to medicine. And after prison, the doctor did try to read the novel, Anna Karenina, again. I went to a bookshop, and uh, when I tried to read it, I couldn't read it. Too many bad memories. But he knew someone who could use it. Somebody, a friend who was imprisoned here in, in Somalia, a journalist, a friend, and I took that book to him. And uh, I told him that the best thing, best present you can have in a prison is a book. This episode was edited by Marion McCune, produced by Jess Jang, in collaboration with the team at Radiolab. Thank you to Elizabeth Senjus-Backman, who introduced me to Dr. Adam. She interviewed him at the Hargeisa International Book Fair in Somaliland. Editorial help from Soren Wheeler, Jacob Goldstein, Noel King, Nick Fountain, Robert Smith, Brian Erdstadt, Lou Olkowski, and Sana Krasikov. Elif Batuman is the author of The Possessed, Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them. Her new novel is The Idiot. Thank you to Rough Translation Advisors, Neil Carruth, Anya Grunman, Mathilde Piard, and Alex Goldmark. Mary Glendening and Greta Pittinger fact-checked this episode. We would love to hear from you what you thought of the episode or tell us your own perspective-shifting travel story. We're on Twitter at Roughly or visit our Facebook page, Rough Translation. You can find previous episodes at npr.org slash translation or wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by John Ellis. More music from Blue Dot Sessions and Dylan Keefe composed additional music for this episode. Today's version of the episode was produced by Justine Yan with help from our intern Elena Torek. Edited by Luis Treas, Adelina Lancianis is our senior producer. Back in two weeks with another fan favorite from Rough Translation. This message comes from NPR sponsor Betterment. Confusing eye contact with a mysterious stranger is never chill. But Betterment is the investing app that lets you be totally chill about your finances. Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor MassMutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice. But you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we 
condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR.